Hello and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reading The Highwayman by Kerrigan Byrne. This was published in 2015 and is the first book in the Victorian Rebels series. We have a lot to say about this one, so let's get straight to the jacket. Stealing Beauty, Dorian Blackwell, the black heart of Ben Moore, is a ruthless villain. Scarred and hard-hearted, Dorian is one of Victorian London's wealthiest, most influential men who will stop at nothing to wreak vengeance on those who've wronged him and will fight to the death to seize what he wants. The lovely, still innocent widow, Farrah Lee Mackenzie, is no exception. And soon, Dorian whisks the beautiful lass away to his sanctuary in the wild highlands. Courting desire. But Farrah is no one's puppet. She possesses a powerful secret one that threatens her very life. When being held captive by Dorian proves to be the only way to keep Farrah safe from those who would see her dead, Dorian makes Farrah a scandalous proposition. Marry him for protection in exchange for using her secret to help him exact revenge on his enemies. But what the black heart of Ben Moore never could have imagined is that Farrah has terms of her own. Igniting a tempestuous desire that consumes them both. Could it be that the woman he captured is the only one who can touch the black heart he'd long thought dead? I mean... First of all, this jacket has some long-ass sentences. I was thinking that myself. <laughs> I was, like, literally thinking, dang, those are some long, com compound, that, complex sentences. That was a lot. Second of all, it's like... A solid half the book just spoiled right there. A lot is spoiled, but also a lot is like way so dramatic. He whisks the beautiful lass away to his sanctuary in the wild highlands. No, they just go to his like estate in Scotland that's pretty close to Edinburgh. Like, he did kidnap her to get her there, but yeah. He did kidnap her, yes. I agree so, with the whisk. Well, he whisked her away. Else. Yeah. <laughs> More than that, though, I think this black book jacket does get into the random penchant for dramatic purple prose in very weird places. Yes, I I was going to say, you do get a taste for the prose. <laughs> I have such mixed feelings about this book. Same. I really enjoyed it while I was reading it. Yeah. But... It has a lot of themes that we've discussed as being particularly upsetting to us previously. Yes. And uh, it's incredibly similar, as Meg identified, to a book we've previously reviewed. Yeah, it's um, extremely, extremely similar. And I found it quite problematic. We're going to get it, like, I'm going to get into it quite a bit, actually. <laughs> Um, I will say, though, that this, regardless of how much we're talking about the purple prose right now, this book was still compulsively readable. Like Lane yes. said, like, you just, you just couldn't put it down. Like, you just wanted to just keep reading it. Well, it was definitely one of those books that even the elements I found problematic, I still found really sexy. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the sex. Yeah. Like, this was a good example of flirting with the dark side sort of 
Yes, and a little bit of like the gothic romance, you know? And it was darker than the book we think it's similar to in a lot of ways, and darker than I think a lot of what we've read. It was very violent and not very morally ambiguous, like unquestionably dark. And I was still sort of here for it. And I think, yeah. frankly, if it hadn't had one or two of the things that we've talked about offending us over and over and over again, and if it hadn't been so similar to something else, I think I'd really like this book. But yeah. because of those two factors, I'm like struggling with how to describe how I felt about it. Yeah, yes, yes, I agree. Like, like I said, I didn't want to put this book down. No. So, so I mean, that's something to say for it. We're going to be deviating from our usual formula a couple of times in this review just because I don't think either of us want to rehash stuff we've already said a ton of times. Yeah. But we will at least be starting with our random number, St. Marie's. And this episode, the random number was 30. Uh, so I guess I'll start. The Highwaymen is a story of faded love, crime, punishment, PTSD, and hot angsty sex. If you liked Nick and worth any price, then you've already met and liked Dorian. And mine. Woman mourns childhood crush for her whole life until a criminal Stockholm syndromes her into reclaiming her life. No one is ever really dead. Kazbrecker still does it better. <laughs> um, so there, there are a lot of tropes in this book. There, gosh... They, the the big one, and I guess this maybe would count as a spoiler, but it's not. Like, if you have ever read a romance novel, this is not a spoiler. I was going to say, so it's second chance romance, right? Right. But I actually think it's more ambiguous because I don't know if you could call their initial encounter a true romance. <laughs> is, it, is it first, is it childhood romance? Friends to lovers? Yeah, like, I'm... <laughs> If you think of second chance romance as adult people are in love, one wrongs the other, and then there's something for them to forgive between themselves so they can have another chance at love, that's not this formula. Okay, this the formula is A Lady by Midnight, which is yeah. you grew up together in some horrible situation, and then you get separated when you're young, and then you get reunited later when you're older. Yeah, but A Lady by Midnight, there's still, like, teenagers who are interested in hooking up. No, she was, like, tiny. She was, like, little, little. She couldn't even remember him, remember? Oh, never mind. I'm mixing that up with, again, the magic. Oh, yeah, so it's not, again, the magic. It's A Lady, Lady by like, Midnight. Well, and, yes. I mean, that comes to mind, too, because he's also an ex-con in that one. That's why they're all sort of blending together and uh -huh. so I should say a lot like we are very used to romance novels recycling tropes and doing things similarly it takes a lot for us to specifically highlight the parallels to one text in the way we're going yeah. to with Wilhelm Any Price yes um so as Meg was alluding to with the the tragic childhoods they are both sad tragic orphans yes they're both sad tragic orphans although he <laughs> He knew who his father was. But he was literally in an orphanage. But he was literally I think in an I can call him a sad, tragic it's, orphan. It's fair. But we, we, it also means we are allowed to put in our other historical romance trope, which is daddy issues. That's true. So I just want to throw that in there. And she uh, kind of has parent issues, too, in that 
they made a decision for her before their passing that she never really comes to understand. Yeah. And it's kind of haunted her her whole life. Mm-hmm. A lot like um, with any price, maybe? Yeah, but more ambiguous. I, like, having finished the book, I still don't understand why yeah. her parents made that choice. At least it was worth any price, like, her parents were shit. They were shitty, yeah. I, so, I, like, I don't... And in this one, they weren't, like, super shitty. You're not, I have no idea why they did what they did. Literally. I, I finished yeah. the book, and I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, as Meg mentioned, he's also an ex-con. So, and not just an ex-con, but an ex-con who has reimagined himself as lord of a criminal underworld yes he has he's one of the richest most powerful men in london i mean do we know exactly how we got there no we don't but do we care no No, we we also don't care (laughs) Uh, there are so many secret identities so many oh my gosh yes You, you might think that we're talking about one character no we're talking about like Three, four. Yep. A lot of characters have some kind of fake or assumed identity. We're just like slightly altered their name or there's there's some degree of they're not being fully authentic about who they are. Yeah. Uh, she was promised to another man. And there's kind of two different scenarios where you can look at that. Oh, my God. Yes. Uh-huh. So, um, we're going to do our best to be spoiler-free here, you guys, but, like... I don't think we're going to... I'll I'll tell you, we we failed so hard at Worth Any Price, too, and it's the exact same issues of the plot is constructed in a way that it's all a house of cards. Once you say one thing, the rest unravels. Um, Uh, She's been hiding in plain sight all along. Literally in Scotland Yard, which it's I like kind of so love. It's so funny. I, I did too. I kind of loved it. But I mean, basically, the only thing that she changes is her last name. Yep. That's it. And her origin story. Yeah. To the degree that she has one. But like going around saying she's the Mackenzie widow when she had a pretend hand fasting or a real hand fasting when she was 10. <laughs> Still a little bit. <laughs> Deceptive. <laughs> yeah. They go on a shopping spree together where he obviously is buying her all new clothes and there's a flirtatious modiste, which upsets her. And I think <laughs> I've read this scene in 100 books. Yeah. I mean, doesn't mean I hate it. No. Once again, I'm trying to draw the distinction between tropes yes. of love and. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. We... inspiration. We're... Oh, yes. That's what I'm. Yeah. Okay. And. They're both, they repeat pay all their debts and keep all their promises. (laughs) Yes. As character archetypes. That's the most important thing. He, like, literally says, this is the most important thing about me. But even she, so they get separated as children, as we've discussed. And apparently, unbeknownst to him, she visited the jail he was in every day for seven years. Seven years. Mm -hmm. As a small teenager who was not, like, in a stable environment. Like, no. that takes loyalty to a whole new level. This isn't just, like, notebook levels of I wrote you every day for a year. This is I was a poor, starving orphan living under an assumed identity, and I still brought you bread every day. Well, and also she takes on this widow identity, and... But she and kind of believes it. She basically believes it, and 
and she feels like she's betraying this person who she wasn't actually married with, who died. Yeah, she she's dead. Yes, exactly. Which we get into, I think maybe literally everyone in this book has a fake death. Literally everyone. <laughs> so we mean the three main <laughs> movers and shakers do. <laughs> Where's the lie? I mean, the only person who doesn't is like Sir Carlton. As far as we know. <laughs> I mean, that does sound kind of like a fake name. <laughs> I also want to point out, so there's, there's, this isn't quite a reimagining of Beauty and the Beast or Robin Hood, but there are so many textual elements, either explicitly or implicitly, referring to those books. Yes. That I do think it needs to be called out. He is, like many other romantic heroes, a criminal who supports a lot of worthy causes. And yeah. gives time, money, and resources to protecting the downtrodden. Mm -hmm. And he obviously is this, oh, trope, scarred. Scarred. British, giant, uh, rough, gruff man who kidnaps this untouched, perfect fairy. Yeah. And hides her in his castle away from humanity until she falls in love with him. Like, yeah. there's did some you, Beauty and the Beast vibes. Did you know that in the original Beauty and the Beast, she was an actual fairy? Because she was. The very, very original. Yeah, I don't think I'd heard that before. There's a lot. <laughs> These are oh, not happy yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, They're and of course, we he is, like, super strong and, like, super good looking. And he's, like, super cut. And why, Lane? Uh, because when he was in jail 10 years ago, he dug a lot of railroads. <laughs> there I is mean, no explanation of why he's still in shape, but he is huge yeah he's I mean and again do I hate it no I don't I do want to say though that for being a historical romance this one is unique to me and what it doesn't have uh-huh there are no carriage rides there are no balls there are no house parties a lot of the traditional structure that we see especially in books about peers mm -hmm. are completely absent from this text that's true yeah, it's she really. I feel that Byrne really embraces the uh, the dark romance. I I don't even want to say gothic romance. I want to say like dark romance. Like there's definitely gothic romance vibes to this, but I'm thinking specifically of like she watches him beat people to death. Yeah. On the page, it is described in graphic detail. Mm -hmm. This does not shy away from the ugliness. This isn't the and then he slit the throat. You're in his head while he beats two people, and then almost a third person, literally to death. Uh, so as you heard, this is the first in the Victorian Rebel series. It is Kerrigan Byrne's debut historical romance. It is not her debut novel. I say that because I think her editor really did her dirty here. Um, there were a lot of things that really needed to be caught and changed. I'm not even talking about the egregious ones, but for example, Og is her as a child. Uh, then the first chapter is her, you know, a little bit ex exposition heavy, which is fine. And we come up with this sentence. Her feelings for Carlton Marley had recently become much more opaque, complicated even. Great. You know, that's fine. It's, it's pretty, it's, ni it's a nice image, you know, opaque feelings. I don't know. I didn't hate it. I liked it. it except then in page 110, we get 
her feelings for Dorian had become increasingly complex and opaque. So it's like, okay. So I guess when she falls in love with someone or starts feeling attracted to someone, her feelings become opaque and complex or complicated. I use the word life twice in the same sentence in my 30 word summary on purpose. It was an homage. This is, this book had so many repetitive thoughts and concepts. And um, the, yeah, the, the other that were abused. Yeah. The other ones I want to call out <laughs> were split and slit. So um, split is used eight nine times in the novel and slit is used eight times in the novel. Uh, I realize they're not the same word, but they're very similar and they're used for very similar things. She uses them in sex scenes a lot, but she also uses them to like slit people's throats or have split lips, things like that. Um, so there, I mean, in my, in my opinion, there is a, 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 an overt connection between violence and sex and, and the sex is violent as well. So it's not, you know, anyway. I'm just, just saying. Yeah. Premise is, as we've mentioned, Farah and Dugan were childhood orphans together. A tragic event separates them, sends him to prison and her presenting herself as his widow, even though she's, you know, ten and a half. And while in prison, he creates a band of merry men. (laughs) One of whom and it's believed to be Dugan, is killed or dies under ambiguous circumstances. Now, when she meets Dorian, he tells her the true story of Dugan's death and the reason for him tracking her down is to fulfill a dying wish of his best friend Dugan and get revenge on the people who wronged them while they were in prison. Right. Dugan was a Mackenzie, hence why she took the married name of Mackenzie. But when they meet, that castle that he's living in is on Mackenzie lands. Dorian Blackwell wears Mackenzie tartan and only drinks Mackenzie liquor and talks about being related to the Laird. Yeah. And it's also described in detail how strikingly similar Dorian and Dugan were as children physically right were you supposed to like think they were long lost half brothers both bastards of the laird was dorian actually a Mackenzie, and that's part of what brought them together or is that just supposed to be like a thing in the text that makes you realize that pharaoh's an idiot for not picking up on the fact that dugan's obviously still alive sooner i mean that's my opinion is that basically pharaoh's just an idiot okay. i mean pharaoh's pretty stupid this whole book yeah, that's one of the things I struggled with. That did not bother me as much as it should. Farah <laughs> is just, very much that that sweet, innocent romance heroine that you probably read in like '90s romances. Yeah, and she was like the, She was basically so. Basically, Farah is the '90s romance heroine, which, on the one hand, is like okay, and on the other hand, is like whatever I don't know okay (laughs) very I'm very meh about it doesn't mean I hate it doesn't mean I love it she's just like a person she's perfect I almost wrote manic percy dream girl but I think she's got a little too much substance I don't think it's all good substance but I do think there's enough 
between her job and her fake identity that keep her from being quite Manic Pixie Dream Girl. Yeah, I will say there's this one part. So if you listen to the podcast, you know that that I'm usually the one who complains about things um, like the language not being of the time, uh, maybe taking me out of it. There's one part where, it, I mean, it it, it is such um, inauthentic language, and I laughed so hard. It was so funny. So get this, guys. Dorian cannot stand to be touched. He can't be stand can't stand to be touched in any way at all. Um, and he's trying to get Farah to marry him. And Farah's like, okay, I will marry you, but look, I realize that you can't touch me, but you're gonna have to. I need. I want a family, so you're gonna have to figure out how to impregnate me. And he's like, also, no, I, I am still a virgin, and so if you want our marriage not to be questioned, you need to consummate it. Yeah. And he's like, not gonna happen. So she goes, well, then I, I'll just find someone else to do it then. And he's like, I'll kill that whoever touches your body. And then she goes, I loved it. She goes, well, that's not very solution oriented. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was so funny. Like, to me, that's the perfect time to use um, inauthentic language because yeah. like, it take, you're, you want to get out of the moment there. I don't and know. Then, I thought it was really funny. I loved it. Um, well applied for sure yeah so so there you go I just praised something uh one of some of Burns language so there was a big courtroom scene mm-hmm. and uh we usually love those and in this case I had some issues with it so what it were your for me. what were your particular issues with it um so my my major issues were first of all that it wasn't like the climax mm-hmm. if there's going to be like a courtroom drama something comes out um I want that to be like the climactic scene of the day mom like I would I love it if it's like that's the where the tension breaks right and I that didn't really hit it for me didn't hit that that level for me um and then also I felt that the way it was resolved was just a little and so basically one of the judges knew her as a child and he poses a trick question for her in this imposter. And she's the only one who can answer it right. So, I mean, okay, fine. Like that's, that's fine. But I just, I didn't think it was as good as it could have been. I think my bigger problem with it is there were too many characters you were seeing for the first time in a very short sequence and it really lessened the tension yeah. To have so many new plot elements because you're not just introduced to all of the judges and the people who are the, the imposter and the cohort of the imposter, but you're also finding out about Blackwell's dealings with the individuals on the court bench. Like there was just too much else going on in that scene. There was for a the lot. Actual tension that you're supposed to be feeling to resonate. Yeah. Uh, and then I will say that I I thought. I thought Byrne was looking, was setting up a different ending. And I, I saw it coming and she didn't go that route. And, and at first I was like, okay, maybe it's something different. But from what the act we actually got, I'm quite disappointed that she didn't, that she didn't go for the ending. So here is what, uh, in my opinion, she should have done. So basically someone is posing as Farah. Okay. And um, so as not to give away all of the plot elements, I won't tell you why. Uh, but somebody, there's an imposter who's posing as Farah. 
it comes out that that imposter is a whore who used to work at a brothel and then owned the brothel, Dorian. What I was hoping is that he had engineered the entire thing to, to force her into marrying him. And so that the whole thing, the death threats, the courtroom scene, everything was a manipulation from him uh, so that she could get a little bit of character development and the conflict wouldn't have ended up being the whole, I, I'm giving you all my love. I won't accept it because I'm cold hearted. Um, which, again, is in too many books, um, especially one in particular. Um, but it, so it would have given her some more uh, character development and it would have avoided uh, copying another book. I was just along for the ride. I, honestly, by the end, this book had gone so far off the rails in a way that I was half really enjoying and half confused and befuddled by that I can't say I had the same expectation. I guess I'm glad he didn't, he wasn't playing her false at any point. That makes me like him more, but he I agree with you that it false. meant there, He was the, lying to her about his identity for the entire book. I mean, in the sense that he was doing more to manipulate her than sure. actually <laughs> happening. But sure. I just, I agree with you that everything in the end felt really anticlimactic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There wasn't really a good issue and it was being played as a high stakes drama. Um, so as you have probably figured out by now, Dorian is actually Dugan. Yeah, Dorian was killed, not Dugan, but the people who killed him thought they'd killed Dugan. So and Dugan assumed Dorian's identity because Dorian was due for release sooner, pretty much. Exactly. The the mystery of the identity is held back so she doesn't confirm or deny his identity until very close to the end. And so basically you as the reader don't know for sure until Farrah knows. I think it would be a very unobservant reader. <laughs> you would have to be an extremely unobservant reader not to figure it out early. I kind of, I felt like it had to be, yeah, I don't know. I'm thinking of a different Kleypas book at this point, um, Stranger in My Arms, which I think pulled it off really, really well. The ambiguity, like, is this, who is this person? Okay. Well, um, I don't think this one was actually meant to be that much of a mystery. For both of their identities, we have the problem of you're in their perspectives and they don't think about the obvious truth that they would be thinking about in that moment. I just had to let go of all of that because otherwise I would have spent all of this book frustrated. I, I kind of wish that he actually had been Dorian. Like imagine that. I don't know if that would have been better or worse, but the fact that he keeps talking about how he's loved her for 17 years, like, you know, he's not, I didn't understand all the fake outs because there are some key facts that are unalterable. I know. Uh, that would have been very interesting to me if he had claimed to be Dugan. Although he was actually Dorian. Right. But the stuff that makes him Dugan, he's only saying in his head, not 
externally. Yeah. I know. I know. I'm just saying I, I, that would have been a totally been, different book. Yeah, totally it would have been totally book. different. And and again, I get it. You liked that he wasn't lying to her, manipulating her, whatever. I guess that I would have preferred that than than um what we got. Reading the Which, same book again. Twice. I get it. Okay, okay. Offensiveness. I'm gonna just do a really quick overview of this because yeah. Uh, we've gone over all of these topics before and we've got a bigger fish to fry. So, uh, she is assault, sexually assaulted by a priest as a 10 year old. Mm -hmm. There is a ton of graphic violence. He is a victim of rape, abuse, and torture. There is some very dubious consent in the scenes between the two of them. Mm -hmm. And you also have the usual questions of corrupt cops, exploitation of sex workers, and moral ambiguity of criminal underworld behavior. Anything I missed? Not that I can think of. Okay. Was this sexy? Uh, I mean, yes, this book was, like, super fucking sexy. There's a lot of, like, light bondage that I was not prepared for, but I didn't hate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the the issue with this, so here's the issue with this whole bondage thing is that it's like very sexy to read about, but like in real life, you don't want surprise bondage, you know? Right. <laughs> there is no verbal consent to the bondage. Like he There's says, no touch me again, word. touch me again. I'm going to do something about it. She touches him again. And then where do all of these ropes come from? <laughs> you do know that answer in the text, but you're just kind of blindsided by it. Is that fair? <laughs> oh my god. Um, I mean, yes, that's the thing. That's the thing. It's like it. It and this. I acknowledge that it's very sexy, and I found this book very sexy. At the same time, would it have been nice if he was like, "I can't stand it if someone touches me. I'm going to tie you up now." Yeah, it would have been nice if he said that instead of just doing it. It was especially upsetting because you were in his head for a lot of those scenes, and it was clear to him that her her consent didn't really matter. Mm -hmm. The fact that she was giving it obviously made it more palatable for the reader, like that you knew she was consenting, but it's clear that that didn't really matter to him, which is um, not great. He, he didn't know. Uh, and then I mentioned earlier that, that the words split or slit are used really often in these sex scenes. Um, it's, I mean, yes, the sex itself is already violent, but then she uses this overtly violent language that she also uses other places in the book mm -hmm. to depict actual violence that I, to me, the correlate or correlation, the connection between sex and violence was made very clear. Yes. Like we said, it's dark. Yeah. That said, I would like to point out one of my favorite sentences. Okay, so I'm reading Meg's copy, so I can see, I saw that she underlined it when I was reading it, and I actually, like, cackled when I saw this. I was like, what the fuck is this sentence? Okay, this is the final sex scene where they finally have, like, admitted that they love each other, and they know who each other are, and this is a love to end all loves ever, it's the most amazing love to ever grace the planet. And at the end of the sex, what happens? A simultaneous culmination so sweet and prolonged peeled away any barrier left between them, fusing their souls and their voices into an archaic song of pulsating bliss. 
<laughs> it's so bad. I read it's it and so I was like, bad. what is this? I was like, this like, sentence I... does not belong in this book. Like, give me a sentence that's like, he, he speared her with his <laughs> cock. I can't, I can't even tell you how completely this shifted the tone of the scene. Yes. Yep. Like, it was out of nowhere so funny it was like very stephanie lawrence in like a non-stephanie lawrence book <laughs> stephanie lawrence would get the vapors reading this the book yeah it although was... you know there are a lot of the same themes in some of her books. true that's true uh, all right so okay. oh, as meg calls out in her 30 word summary there are a lot of parallels between the highwaymen and worth any price we reviewed Worth and the Price previously. It's a Lisa Kleypas book about a guy named Nick Gentry who was imprisoned wrongfully and cruelly as a small child, assumed the identity of a fellow prisoner who was killed and kill and, and claimed he himself was dead. When he emerged, he lied, cheated, and stole to become a leader of the criminal underworld fell for a woman living under an assumed identity because she'd been promised to someone else as a child and then had to find a way to reclaim their rightful name and place in the aristocracy while he became a legitimate help to Scotland Yard rather than the bane of their existence. Yeah, that's about it. So that was worth any price. Nick Gentry. Meg likes that name, so we've talked about it a lot. Yeah, we've talked a lot about it, actually, because there are a lot of things I like about that book. Yeah. Um, I I want to make it clear that I don't care if I'm reading a book and it's inspired by another book. Mm-hmm. I don't care about tropes. In fact, one of the things I like most about romance novels is seeing how the different tropes are used in, in different and unique ways. That said, in a book where the the inspiration is so clear... I think it's a little disingenuous not to at least have a foreword or an author's note, an introduction, even an afterword, whatever. I mean, we've talked about this in several books. Um, Sherry Thomas's Beguiling the Beauty, she she says, I was inspired by Judith Ivory's Beast. Eloisa James's The Duke is Mine, she says, I was inspired by the Scarlet Pimpernel. Like, there are books out there where people say, hey, I loved this book and I wanted to do my take on it. Honestly, if Byrne had written a foreword where she said, I love Worth Any Price, I wanted to see a book where the hero spent years in jail and not months and had to deal with the consequences of that, including being actually raped. And not shy away from the darkness, like wanted to delve into just how dirty that world actually is. Yeah. What does being a villain really mean? Like we hear that Nick Gentry is a criminal but we don't see him beating anyone up. We don't see him doing anything like really horrible, um, except escaping from jail, which any good criminal would do that, right? <laughs> right. So I, I don't think that this was, it was so clearly inspired that I wish it had been acknowledged in the text. Yeah. That said, I'm reading this book, reading the whole thing. Like I said, I found it really readable and I was like, really, you know, into it, even though I could, I was like, yeah, this is really inspired by Worth Any Price. Okay, when we read Worth Any Price, 
on the podcast, I read this. So you can go back to last um, September's episode, which is when we, we recorded and published this. I actually called this out because I loved it. I loved this sentence. So Lisa Kleypas writes, um, suddenly she found herself pushed up against the wall by six feet of aroused, overwrought male. I thought it was hilarious. I was like, I literally said, what other author would write something like that? It's such a Kleypas thing. It's so great. Well, at the end of The Highwaymen, we get this line. She was at once trapped between the chilly stones and six feet of burning, aroused male. I mean, okay, you can be inspired by something, but I think you really should probably change more than three or four words in a sentence if you're going to include it in your book. Again, she was really done dirty by the editor if she didn't know that this was, you know, and I would just point out to talk about the differences in these two scenes and worth any price, they are um, immediately overcoming make out and don't realize that a bunch of their coworkers are around them. Mm -hmm. In this book, um, they're so overcome that the fact that they're in a room filled with shit and a dead body doesn't prevent them from feeling each other up until they're interrupted by a friend and coworker. Interrupted so, by a friend and coworker. Mm -hmm. um, I just want to put out there that the biggest difference is the darkness yeah. You know how I am about odors and cleanliness. The fact that he didn't get her away from the chamber pot to jump mm -hmm. her did upset me profoundly. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what, that's what not really your got... point, but I had, I had to say that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what got me was that it was basically the same scene with yep. a different setting. Yeah. Um, I was like, oh, oh, my one of my favorite scenes, but in a different book. Yeah, and there's also just a lot of other overlap. If you, after I, after that part, it really hit me, and I started thinking about it, like, a lot. And I was like, this book is actually kind of an amalgam of Lady Sophia's Lover and Worth Any Price. So if you think of it that way, so Sir Carlton Morley is Sir Ross Cannon, and Farah, she's a mix between Sophia and, and Lottie. Lottie. Um, Nick, obviously, is Dorian. Uh, Nick first sees Sophia in prison when she comes to take notes for Sir Ross. How does um, how does Dorian meet Farah? Uh, she comes to take notes for Sir Carlton while he's in jail. Hmm. Um, I already mentioned the kidnapping. Uh, we talked about how Lottie was raised to marry an evil rich dude. Uh, and Farah was also betrothed as a child to an evil dude. And then finally, why did Dorian have to tie up Farah during sex? Because he was so traumatized by his time in jail. What does Nick have to do to get close to Lottie when they have sex? Surprise bondage! <laughs> so anyway, so a lot of inspiration here. And if, if a few things had been changed, mostly the ending of the book, uh, I think I could have handled a lot more, but I do think there's a difference between inspiration and. But it was yeah. really impossible not to be really strongly reminded of worth any price. Actually, get I'm not I'm not saying that she set out to plagiarize Claypus because I don't think no. that she did. No, I, I think that she was highly inspired and that like I mean that's a great line that sentence 
mm-hmm. is an awesome line. I mean, I loved it. And you can read something so much that it gets in your head and you don't realize that that's what you're saying, you know, but you need to, you need to have people who can catch that for you. Yeah. A hundred percent. Anyway, I will definitely be continuing to read at least the Highlander because I already bought it. So I'll be reading that book in the series. Yeah, I've de- I definitely am willing to read more books in this series and by and by Kerrigan Byrne. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for listening. As always, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe.